Content warning. The following episode includes discussion of war, including physical and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Dearborn, Michigan has the highest concentration of people of Middle Eastern descent outside the Middle East itself. Dearborn is right outside the city of Detroit and boasts of restaurants and shops catering to that community, as well as a local shopping mall, Fairlane Town Center, which has been a draw for the west side of Detroit for decades. During normal times, it's not uncommon to see people milling about, overhearing people speaking Arabic, seeing store signs in Arabic script, and seeing women and teen girls wearing hijab. I grew up in Detroit on the other side of town, closer to the Gross Points, Harper Woods, and St. Clair Shores. But most of my relatives lived on the west side, including my aunts and my uncle, my dad's siblings, who lived just blocks away from Dearborn. On top of that, while Dearborn was home to an enclave of Middle Eastern immigrants, they weren't relegated to Dearborn. They lived all over the Metro Detroit area. There are Chaldeans, Middle Eastern Christians primarily from Iraq, as well as Arabs and other Middle Eastern people living all over the Detroit area, as well as immigrants from South Asian countries such as Pakistan and Bangladesh, who are primarily Muslim. These were my classmates in school, my co-workers at my after-school jobs, our family friends. These weren't the boogeymen portrayed by politicians in the mainstream media after the September 11th attacks. But of course, everything wasn't rosy. Metro Detroit has seen a lot of racial and ethnic conflict for decades, and the Middle Eastern community wasn't immune. But at least when I was growing up, it wasn't due directly to foreign policy. Stereotype of Indians or Koreans running convenience stores in Detroit replaced those groups with Arabs and Chaldeans. Many of them owned party stores, which is what we call convenience stores or corner stores in Detroit, as well as other businesses in poor, predominantly black neighborhoods. These neighborhoods were typically underserved, and black Detroiters seeking business loans would often find a lot of barriers to obtaining them. With high markups typical of convenience stores, as well as the fact that many black neighborhoods in Detroit were, and still are, food deserts. This led to conflict and animosity between the two communities and prejudices that cut both ways. But the point is that unlike the xenophobic protests of many right-wing Americans who didn't grow up in diverse metropolitan areas, there is no specific threat that comes from the presence of people of Middle Eastern descent and Muslims in America. No Sharia law, no oppression of Christianity. As a matter of fact, people of Middle Eastern descent have served in government, entertained us, and have otherwise helped to shape the United States for much of its existence. And many just haven't realized it yet. And on the other hand, for much of America's existence, including its early days, it has been involved in the affairs of the Middle East region, setting the groundwork for events that would shape the course of the Middle East, the United States, and the world as a whole. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstarer Podcast.
Welcome to Pot Stirrer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. In this multi-episode series, I will discuss the history of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and the complex relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East. So, this series will be heavier on the history than the politics, though of course, how we tell history can be subjective and political. It's almost impossible to cover everything, even as a multi-part series. This could be a theme for an entire podcast, or college courses, or even a subfield for an international relations graduate degree. All three of these exist in real life. But I will discuss some important highlights that shed some light on the relationship the U.S. has with the Middle East region of the globe today. And the goal is to provide some context and understanding of how the history of American involvement in the Middle East has helped to shape our current reality. You might ask why I'm focusing specifically on U.S. involvement in the region and not just focusing on the Middle East without the framework of U.S. politics. After all, the modern Middle East has been shaped by wars, coups, treaties, and other events going back centuries and even millennia. It's called the cradle of civilization for a reason. And even within the past couple hundred years, many countries have had a hand in how the Middle East functions today, not just the U.S. I am limiting the scope this way, though, for two reasons. First, it's impossible to do the subject justice if made overly broad, especially since U.S. politics is the central focus of this podcast. Secondly. I'm a strong believer in staying in my lane. While I really enjoy the subject, it's near and dear to my heart because it was part of the reason why I became a political scientist. And like other topics I tackle, my aim is for this series to be well-researched. I am also aware of my limitations. I am not from the Middle East. My lineage isn't from the Middle East. I am not Muslim. And I am not a subject matter expert on Middle East politics. U.S. politics is my wheelhouse, and while I can draw from my personal experiences interacting with people from the Middle East region, and I can research the heck out of this topic, there are Middle Eastern people, there are Muslim people, and there are subject matter experts that are making podcasts and other content, and this series is not a substitute for that. So that's why I'm narrowing it down to a framework I can speak to with some knowledge and expertise. And more to this point, during this series, I will amplify content from people from the Middle East, Americans whose ancestry is from the region, and experts in Middle East politics and history. If you are interested in the Middle East in general, or the perspective of people either from the Middle East, Americans of Middle Eastern descent, Muslim Americans, or scholarly experts on the region, I want to point you in that direction. There is no complete agreement by scholars as to what constitutes the Middle East, but when discussing this region, I'm going to lean towards a more broad definition. When I discuss the Middle East in this series, it'll generally include Southwest Asia, lands west of China and India, south of Kazakhstan, European Russia and the Black Sea, as well as North Africa, which is the part of the continent of Africa north of the Sahara Desert. The reason why I'm using this definition is because, politically speaking, 
U.S. foreign policy surrounding the Middle East region, especially in the past several decades, has included many of the countries that fit this more broad definition. For example, Afghanistan is not included in most definitions of the Middle East because it is a South Asian country. But as we'll discuss later in the series, it's almost impossible to talk about the history of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East region, even as a basic overview, without discussing U.S. military actions in Afghanistan. I am not staking a scholarly position as to what the right definition of what is the Middle East and what isn't. This is more of a functional definition for the purposes of understanding the trajectory of U.S. foreign policy in the region. I'll also stay away from terminology such as the Arab world or the Muslim world. Both of these terms gloss over the diversity, the rich diversity, that has always existed in a region. This is regardless of if we use more limited definitions of the Middle East. And these terms aren't particularly accurate. So the Arab world is often used to discuss the region, even if we focus on the countries located between the Mediterranean Sea and the Caucasus. Not all of the people groups residing there are Arabs. Persians, Kurds, Berbers, and other ethnic groups are native to the region. And that doesn't even get into the various Jewish ethnic divisions residing in Israel. And speaking of that, the Muslim world is a misnomer as well. While the region is predominantly Muslim, it is where Islam originated, and it includes the key Muslim holy sites. Other religions call the Middle East home as well. I have mentioned Jewish people, and the region also includes Christians, Druze, Zoroastrians, and many other religious groups. Also, the most populous Muslim country is actually Indonesia, which isn't even in the Middle East at all using any definition. I want to make this clear up front because I am a strong believer that words matter and I'm aiming to provide a framework of what the scope will be for the series. Now, this first episode is essentially a prelude to truly understand the context of the relations between the U.S. and the Middle East. It is important to understand at least a little bit about the historical background of the Middle East region. I will outline a brief history of the Middle East, starting from the late Roman Empire period, though around the 1500s. Just so you know, this is the first episode of Potstirer Podcast that is not U.S.-centric, which, given the time period I'm discussing, I'm sure you can see why. But as we continue on with the series, it'll become more clear as to why this episode is needed. And I'll be honest, there are a number of events on this timeline I find fascinating, just from a political and religious history perspective. Subsequent episodes, I will focus on specific events and trends that I feel really stick out and are impactful in U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East and U.S.-Middle East relations. And I'm sure, in the course of this series, there will be some events I may not delve into or leave off altogether, simply because this topic is so broad. If I briefly mention something you would like me to explore further, or if there is a topic related to the series you would like me to devote an episode to, please let me know, and I may be able to either incorporate it into this series 
or do a leftovers standalone episode focusing on that specific topic. It's important to have some historical context for what's coming next in the series to better understand the big picture as we move forward, especially a subject that is so extensive, nuanced, and culturally sensitive as this one. It ticks the boxes of ethnicity, religion, nation, identities that so many people are passionate about. The thing to keep in mind is that even at this point in history, decisions were made that set the stage for future events. So, let's get started. At one time, much of the Middle East was ruled by ancient Rome, with the notable exceptions of Iran and much of the Arabian Peninsula. Iran, also known historically as Persia, was home of the Parthian Empire and later the Sasanian Empire, and even at the height of Rome's expansion, those empires kept Rome from expanding any further east. The other exception is much of the Arabian Peninsula, and that was simply because the desert climate formed something of a natural border. But for the sake of some degree of brevity, we'll focus on Rome. The Empire period of ancient Rome began in 27 BCE, and the height of its expansion was during the reign of Trajan from 98 to 117 CE. From 306 to 337 CE, Constantine I was on the throne. Also known as Constantine the Great, the Roman Emperor Constantine is probably best known for his public conversion to Christianity and the Edict of Milan, allowing Christianity, previously a fringe sect in the empire, to be granted status as an accepted religion. Constantine's actions paved the way for Christianity to become the dominant religion in Europe, and later Europe as a whole. I discuss him more in depth in The War on Christmas 2019, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, check that out. One of the other things Constantine did while emperor was to move the capital of the Roman Empire from the city of Rome to the city of Byzantium further to the east, renaming it Constantinople. This move led to increased economic and military investment in the east to the detriment of the west, which was experiencing uprising in empire-held lands in other parts of Europe by local barbarian tribes seeking liberation from the Roman Empire. In 395 CE, just a few decades after the death of Constantine, the Roman Empire split into two halves. This decision was made upon the death of a subsequent emperor, Theodosius I, in order to allow his two sons to rule over a smaller chunk apiece, which was supposed to make administration of this huge empire easier. Well, the two halves had somewhat different fortunes. The western half of the Roman Empire, the part that included Rome itself, would continue to be at war against the Goths and European barbarian tribes falling to them less than 100 years later in 476, which is why 476 CE is often referred to as the fall of the Roman Empire. The land that had been the western Roman Empire would at this point be essentially subdivided and controlled by these smaller factions including the Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Huns, and Barbarians. The Eastern Roman Empire, called the Byzantine Empire by modern-day scholars, 
would continue on, embracing Greek language and culture, and with Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey, as its capital. At the time of the split, the Byzantine Empire encompassed Greece, Turkey, and the Middle East west of what is now Saudi Arabia. The Byzantine Empire would go on successfully for another couple hundred years, expanding west. At its most expansive, by the reign of Emperor Justinian in the mid-1500s, the empire had taken on additional territory in southern Europe, including Italy, the land surrounding the Adriatic Sea, and the southern edge of Spain, as well as Egypt and the northern coastline of Africa. They were on their way to the former glory of the Roman Empire. Make the empire great again. But while the Byzantine Empire was chugging along, cracks began to form. One was over religion. The Byzantine Empire was officially a Christian empire. But even back during the Roman Empire days in the reign of Constantine, regional differences in religious doctrine became apparent, particularly between Christian churches in the East and West. This gave rise to two churches. There was the Church of Constantinople, which would later be known as the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Church in Rome, which we would come to know as the Roman Catholic Church. And over time, the Church in Rome effectively became independent from the Byzantine Empire, though the empire still held land in southern Italy. These two church bodies were originally in communion with each other, though they did have some doctrinal differences. These differences led to a series of ecumenical councils, which were conferences of various religious leaders and scholars held in order to hammer out conflicts in regards to doctrine and religious practice. The First Ecumenical Council in 325, which is also known as the First Council of Nicaea, and the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the last of the universally recognized ecumenical councils held in 787, known as the Second Council of Nicaea, are the ones Christians today tend to be most aware of. But there were seven ecumenical councils in all during this 462-year period, while other councils were held besides the seven. These seven were universally accepted. In any case, all of these ecumenical councils helped to keep tensions at bay between the churches, at least for a while. But over time, disputes over language and church boundaries, unresolved doctrinal differences, as well as rivalries over missions and Slavic lands, placed the church in Constantinople and the church in Rome on a collision course, coming to a head in the mid-11th century. Byzantine Emperor Constantine IX Monomachus, not to be confused with Constantine the Great, sought to bring West and East together and iron out their differences in order to mount a strong defense against the invading Normans, who were at Italy's doorstep. Remember that at this point, much of Italy was also part of the Byzantine Empire. To do this, Constantine sought to get Pope Leo IX, the head of the church in Rome, negotiating with Patriarch Michael Serularius, head of the church in Constantinople, to set aside their differences and work together. And these negotiations weren't going well. And then, Leo dies. The legates, the cardinals in charge of sending messages to the Patriarch on behalf of the Pope, led by Karl Humbert of Silva Candida, see an opening with Leo's death, 
since a new pope had not yet been selected. The legates sidestepped the negotiations entirely by going to the church in Constantinople and on July 16, 1054, they excommunicate the patriarch. Excommunication is a formal declaration of permanently kicking someone out of the church. So the legates excommunicate Serularius and then Serularius excommunicates them. And with one of the biggest no you moments in all of medieval history, this is what is referred to as the Great Schism. This formally and permanently split the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Ultimately, while the Normans were able to take Southern Italy and some other Byzantine territory, it did not completely take out the empire. But those weren't the only problems for the empire around this time. The other crack that began to form, and the Norman invasion hinted at this, is that the empire was difficult to defend militarily. The territory the Byzantines held in Northern Africa in the southern part of the Middle East, including Jerusalem, a major holy city for the three major Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, was eventually lost to Arab Muslims in the Arab-Byzantine Wars. This was the name given to a number of battles between the Byzantine Empire and multiple Islamic caliphates. So the empire had lost a sizable portion of land. And over about a 500-year period starting around the 11th century, so around the same time the Normans were invading Italy, the Byzantine Empire would be under attack by a number of different Turkic groups from Central Asia and would also be affected by the Crusades, which we'll get into in just a second. The Seljuk Turks, who hailed from near the Aral Sea, a now evaporated lake that existed between modern-day Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, had established their own empire in most of the Middle East, including what is now Saudi Arabia, Syria, Iran, and they began to advance on the Byzantine Empire early on in the 11th century. The Seljuks sought to create an empire of their own, which led to the Byzantine-Seljuk Wars, occurring from 1048 to 1308. The Seljuks, who were Sunni Muslim, were also battling with Islamic caliphates in the region, including the Fatimid Caliphate, who were Shia Muslim. To this day, these are the two main branches in Islam, and their differences have been a consistent source of conflict. The chief source of conflict between Shia and Sunni is who was the successor to the Prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam. Shia, or Shiite Muslims, believe that his cousin and son-in-law, Ali ibn Abi Talib, was chosen by Muhammad to be his successor upon his death in 632. Sunni Muslims believe Abu Bakr, Muhammad's father-in-law, was the first rightful successor by election. While Abu Bakr was connected to Islam's founder through marriage, he was not a clan relation. While Sunnis respect Ali and the house of Muhammad and view him as one of the early leaders in Islam, they believe that chief leadership in Islam was meant to be determined by the Muslim community. There are other doctrinal differences between the branches, and there are also subsets of these branches with their own views, as well as smaller sects that vary in their beliefs as well. But that's the short of it. 
and these divides will come up later in the series. So, in the early part of the second millennium, there was fighting between the Byzantines and the Seljuks, and the Seljuks and the Islamic Caliphates, and the Middle East was ground zero. Peppered in with these military conflicts were another series of wars, known as the Crusades. Last year, I attended the first She Podcasts Live, a podcasting conference centered around women podcasters. It was in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was an amazing experience. I met so many wonderful people from diverse backgrounds and cultures. There's so many fascinating and informative sessions, and it was wonderful to gain valuable tools to improve Potstar Podcast. While attending one of the sessions, I met a woman named Rima, who is one of the creators, along with Yasmin and Malak, of a podcast called Dearborn Girl. If you've been listening to Pastor Podcast for a while, you'll probably know that I'm partial to my hometown of Detroit, Michigan. And Dearborn, Michigan, which is where these ladies hail from, is right next door. So when I got home from the conference, I had to listen, and I'm glad I did. Dearborn Girl interviews Arab and Muslim women from in and around Dearborn and allows them to tell their stories in both podcast and video form. They have a YouTube channel as well and well-produced videos, including street interviews, in-depth features, and other themed content. As someone who grew up in the same metro area but is not part of the Arab or Muslim community, Dearborn Girl is eye-opening, refreshing, and real. It also serves a need within the community to provide an outlet for Muslim and Arab women to tell their own stories and define their lives and who they are for themselves. I will provide links in the show notes. I highly encourage you to check them out. Dearborn Girl is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to their YouTube channel. The Crusades were a series of religious wars between Christians and Muslims, and at times between Christians and other Christians, waged on Middle Eastern land. And this is how they started. The slow decline of the Byzantine Empire led to Jerusalem no longer being in their hands. Jerusalem, and the Holy Land as a whole, the Holy Land being an area of the Palestine region sacred to Jews, Christians, and Muslims, had been pretty much in a tug-of-war among Islamic factions since not long after the death of Muhammad in the 600s. Well, in 1081, yes, four to five hundred years later, well after the Byzantines lost control of the region, Alexios I, who had been a Byzantine military general, became emperor and due to his diplomatic and military abilities, sought to rebuild a Byzantine empire in tatters, which is sort of a recurring theme in the empire's fall. And while emperor, he was successful in consolidating what was left of the empire, which at this point wasn't much. But to deal with the threat from the Seljuks and Islamic caliphates in the east, Alexios sent envoys to Pope Urban II in Rome, requesting Christian mercenaries from Europe to help the Byzantines fight off the caliphates. Remember, the Byzantines were Eastern Orthodox, while Pope Urban II and the mercenaries Alexios was requesting were Roman Catholic. Well, 
these men did not see eye to eye religiously. Relations between these Christian traditions were improving. And not only that, both men viewed these Muslim powers as a common threat. But when Urban II went to the Council of Clermont in November of 1095, held in the south of France, and he called on European Christians to take up arms and go down to the Middle East to help out the Byzantine Empire, he framed it not as a strategic alliance in order to expand worldly power, but as a holy, righteous quest to take back the Holy Land from the Muslims so it could be back in the hands of Christians. Ultimately, Urban wanted to reunite the Eastern and Western Church with himself as the head. Recall that this was less than 50 years after the Great Schism. So, when the Crusaders came down through Europe, down to Constantinople to convene with Alexios. Most had no intention of being subordinate to the Byzantine Emperor, and Alexios discovered that the mercenaries he was given were expecting a holy war. And this tension between the objectives of Alexios and the Byzantine Empire, and Urban II and the Crusaders, affected what would be known as the First Crusade, and set the tone for this one and the ones afterwards. The most well-known and impactful crusades occurred between 1095 and 1291, though crusades still occurred on a smaller scale up until the Protestant Reformation. Collectively, the crusades have been viewed by many in retrospect as an egregious example of religious atrocities done in the name of the Christian faith, and there are reasons for that. Here are a couple of examples. In 1096, a group of crusaders marching through Germany on their way to their destination killed Jewish people in several towns in the Rhineland, the largest massacre being of 1,100 men, women, and children in the town of Menz. And when the crusaders were ready to take Jerusalem, which was occupied at that point by the Fatimid Caliphate, while the crusaders had promised to spare civilians. They did nothing of the sort, again killing hundreds of local Muslim and Jewish men, women, and children as they stormed the holy city. And such incidents were not isolated. The Crusades ended up essentially being a centuries-long tug-of-war fought over Jerusalem, the Holy Land, and other strategic sites in the Middle East and Asia Minor. A series of wars waged between European Christian Crusaders, the Byzantines, and Orthodox Christians who were native to the Middle East on one side, sort of, and the Islamic Caliphates, other Muslim armies, and at times the Seljuks, again, sort of, both sides declaring holy war. The Crusades saw Jerusalem change hands, Christians and Muslims committing atrocities of war, and as time went on, a bit of infighting. The Fourth Crusade, between 1202 and 1204, is a key example of this infighting, and it played a pivotal role in terms of both the permanency of the Great Schism and the eventual fall of the Byzantine Empire. This crusade was originally called in 1198 by Pope Innocent III, and started out with the intent of wresting Jerusalem from the hands of the Ayyubid Sultanate a Sunni Muslim dynasty headquartered in Egypt led by Saladin, the first sultan of Egypt and Syria. 
The Sultanate had taken Jerusalem in the Second Crusade 11 years earlier without a massacre of Christian civilians. The Crusaders participating in the Third Crusade were unsuccessful in taking back Jerusalem. So, in 1199, a group of Roman Catholic knights and barons in the north of France took crusade vows. But, while the Crusaders would eventually sail off from Venice to Jerusalem, they didn't quite make it there. Why? So this is what happened. Time was taken to raise up a larger army of crusaders and the funds for such a campaign. Even back then, wars cost money. They didn't quite hit their expectations for men or money. And this was a problem. Venice, which per their agreement with the crusaders, had assembled a fleet of ships along with crew and provisions for the cost of 84,000 silver marks, expecting that the Crusaders could raise an army of 35,000 men, and among this group, they would be able to pony up the cash. Unfortunately for them, that didn't happen. As they showed up in Venice in the late spring of 1202, only 10,000 Crusaders strong, 25,000 men short of their agreement, and they sure didn't have 84,000 silver marks. So the Doge of Venice, a doge in this context is like a duke or head of the city. The doge still had the ships and all their accoutrement ready to go, and he did not want this to go to waste. So he decided to make a deal with the crusaders. He would suspend the unpaid balance if the crusaders took a detour to the Hungarian Empire and attack and loot the port city of Zara. Many of the crusaders initially balked at this deal. Not because they had any problem with the idea of killing people, think of what we just talked about, but because Zara was a Roman Catholic city. Because the Crusaders, too, were Roman Catholic, this could place them at odds with the Pope, and they believed this could leave their souls in jeopardy. But ultimately, the Crusaders took the deal. So, they sailed to Zara and attacked the city, and the city surrendered after a siege lasting 14 days. When Werp got back to Pope Innocent III of the attack, he excommunicated the Venetians and threatened to excommunicate the Crusaders. So the Crusaders were still in Zara and they still needed money. So while they were camping out for the winter, they met Prince Alexios, this is a different Alexios, but just a heads up, there's going to be more. Prince Alexios was the exiled son of the deposed and blinded Byzantine Emperor Isaac II, who had been overthrown and imprisoned by his brother Alexios III, who is now Byzantine Emperor. Prince Alexios wanted their help with deposing his uncle and making himself Emperor. In exchange, he would pay off the Crusaders' debt to Venice and send a Byzantine army to help them in their quest in Jerusalem. Now, this would involve them attacking Constantinople, but the Crusaders agreed to do this because the Byzantines were Eastern Orthodox rather than Roman Catholic. This deal wasn't as much of a risk to their eternal destiny. After spending the winter in Zara, 
the Crusaders went to Constantinople to help Prince Alexios in his quest to depose his uncle. He, as well as the Doge of Venice, assured the Crusaders that the people of Constantinople and of the empire as a whole would embrace the younger Alexios with open arms as the rightful ruler. But as they made it to Constantinople, this turned out to be a lie. The Byzantines typically accepted whoever was on the throne, no matter how they got there. Once they were there, they were considered legitimate. So this wasn't like a traditional monarchy where birthright was everything. So if they couldn't get the people on board with a popular overthrow of the emperor, the Crusades would enact regime change by force. So they attacked the city and Alexios III, the uncle, fled. And now his nephew was free to take the throne as Alexios IV. Except that right after Alexios III fled, the citizens of Constantinople took it upon themselves to free the younger Alexios's father, Isaac II, and place him back on the throne. Because this was not part of the plan, the Crusaders forced Isaac II to place his son on the throne as co-emperor. So in 1203, the deed was done and it was time for the Crusaders to get paid and be on their way to Jerusalem. But there was a problem. And Isaac II was aware of this, but his son was not. This hitch was that the imperial treasury was short and there wouldn't be enough money to pay the Crusaders. Alexios realized this way too late and he tried to come up with the money to no avail. The Crusaders' relationship with Alexios deteriorated and both Alexios and his father Isaac would be deposed and imprisoned by Alexios' chief advisor, also named, you guessed it, Alexios. Apparently no relation. Advisor Alexios would become Emperor Alexios V and unwilling to agree to the deal his predecessor made, he kicked the Crusaders out of Constantinople. Undeterred, the Crusaders decided that they would retaliate with the goal of sacking and pillaging the city. The battles raged on through the first part of 1204 until April of that year, when they were able to break through the city's defenses and rush right in. The Crusaders spent three days raping and pillaging, killing civilians and looting homes, churches, and monasteries. And after three days, Constantinople fell to the Crusaders. While Pope Innocent III publicly condemned the Crusaders, he accepted the spoils of war they gifted him. The Fourth Crusade was effectively over. While a much smaller contingent did make it to the Holy Land, they were unsuccessful and nothing of note came of their efforts. The Crusaders divided up the Byzantine Empire, giving three-eighths of it to Venice and kept the rest. The Fourth Crusade was now over. The Crusaders ruled Constantinople for 57 years until the Byzantines retook Constantinople in July of 1261. Now, I think that due to today's war on terror and the critical eye given to violent strains of Islam, there are a growing number of people today who point to the fact that there were atrocities committed on both sides and the Crusaders were responding to the takeover by Muslims of lands previously held by Christians and say that the Crusades 
should not be viewed as morally problematic for Christians. I would agree that all sides committed atrocities. I hesitate to say both sides because, as I've discussed so far, there wasn't a fully united Christian side and Muslim side. The Muslim kingdoms and nations and people groups had their own differences. And prior to the Crusades, one group of Muslims, the Fatimids, had forcibly taken Palestine, not from Christians, but from another group of Muslims, the Seljuks. The Crusades were more complicated than reducing them to a series of battles between the same two religions. It is also pointed out that the Christians living in Palestine were oppressed. And they were. Christians living in Palestine prior to the Crusades were often forced to pay special taxes, called jizya, because of their faith. And having Christian rulers, even if they were Roman Catholic, was generally considered a better deal for them. So, of course, they sided with the Crusaders and Byzantines. Especially in the beginning. It simply makes sense. And when we look at that today, especially from countries with secular governments, at least on paper, the idea of taxing certain religions or expecting certain religions to pay tribute but not others seems wrong, and objectively, it is. But when we look at the scale of religious tolerance that existed at that point in history, the Christians in Palestine pre-Crusades got a much better deal than religious minorities, especially Jews, in Europe during that same time period. The damning part of this, why the Crusades are viewed as such a stain on Christianity, is that the Crusaders went somewhere else to fight someone else's war and unnecessarily killed innocent people in the process. There's a level here of the Crusaders looking for religious redemption, financial gain, opportunity, and adventure by getting involved in centuries-long conflict that had nothing to do with them. It included disaffected young men who were trained as warriors but were not slated to inherit anything from their fathers, who knew all about fighting but nothing else. These young men were, for lack of a better term, throwaways, and it was convenient for the power structure in Europe to send them off to another part of the globe as opposed to them wreaking havoc in their own backyards. And yes, the Crusaders were initially invited, but it was clear from the outset that they weren't there to fight on behalf of the Byzantine Empire. And by and large, the Crusaders had their own agenda. That was the undercurrent for the next 200 years of intermittent holy war. All that said, is it fair to say that all Christians bear the stain of the Crusades? Probably no more than Muslims as a whole are responsible for 9-11. They're not. I do want to be consistent here. And Christians as a whole are not responsible for what the Crusaders did. But I will also say this. As a Christian and also as someone who was born in the West and currently lives in the West. Like it or not, in a lot of ways, we as Western Christians are the spiritual successors of the Crusaders and those in Europe who created the conditions for the Crusades to occur. Unequal and exploitative societies producing disaffected young men without purpose, guiding them towards violent action with messages of religious and ethnic supremacy. Because we're afraid of them finding out that the power structure is failing them and sending them elsewhere 
to do damage to other people where we can't see what's happening, yet the effects change the course of history. There is a lot to be learned from the Crusades. I'm just not so sure we've learned it yet. By the end of the 1200s, the Crusades were, for all intents and purposes, over. Within the Middle East, the immediate effects are difficult to pinpoint. The Holy Land that the Crusades were fought over were shared among the Muslim, Christian, and Jewish people who lived there. While there was a great deal of turnover in terms of who ruled the land, the people who called this region home coexisted. Now, as we all know, this would change centuries in the future, which we'll discuss later in this series. The Crusaders were by and large seen as backwards, unwashed religious fanatics. But the Crusades were sort of like one thing in a long list of events that made this part of the world at least somewhat unstable. And so historians debate to what degree the Crusades took a toll on the people who lived in the region. Against the backdrop of the Crusades were the Byzantine-Seljuk Wars, encroachment by the Mongol Empire led by legendary warrior and leader Genghis Khan coming from the east, and battles among various Muslim dynasties, caliphates, and sultanates. So none of this helped the region. The Crusades, at the end of the day, solidified the divide between Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic traditions of Christianity. Through the Crusades, Western and Central Europe, which had been technologically behind the Middle East and the Mediterranean, were able to play catch-up in the areas of military warfare, farming, and mathematics, and rose as a major power. The thing to understand is that up until that time, the Middle East and the Mediterranean region, including North Africa, were a cultural, academic, and religious destination due to being home to a number of advanced civilizations with storied and well-documented histories. I've discussed issues from my perspective regarding the Crusades, but while the Crusades were problematic, particularly on the part of the European Crusaders, they were not imperialist in the modern sense of the term. While the idea was to seize land, primarily the city of Jerusalem and the Holy Land in Palestine, they were not seizing it on behalf of any sense of nationalism or loyalty to their countries or even regions. And while religion was a huge factor in the Crusades, this was before we got into the race for colonization by the West. As a matter of fact, this is before many Western and Central European powers were powers at all. But the experiences gained from the Crusades were foundational and set the stage for the age of imperialism that would occur in the future. As for the Byzantine Empire, whose desire to regain their former territory set into motion the Crusades, they would regain their capital, but they were struggling big time and were truly a shell of their former glory. The Byzantine-Seljuk Wars ended in 1308, when the Seljuk Empire, who by that time ran the Sultanate of Rum, fell to the Mongols. The official end to the Byzantine Empire would come in the 1400s. Not from the Mongols, not from the Venetians, or other Catholic European kingdoms and territories, or even the Muslim caliphates and sultanates. The end would come from a new empire 
rising up from the ashes of the old Seljuk Empire. The first leader of the Ottoman Turks, Osman I, was from one of the Beyliks, or principalities of Anatolia. Anatolia is a peninsula now best known as the part of modern-day Turkey that sits in Asia. The Ottoman Turks, who were established around 1299, were initially made up of local tribal groups who descended from the Seljuks, as well as defecting Byzantines. The Ottomans were named after Osman, whose name in Arabic is Uthman. Through the 1300s and early 1400s, they first conquered most of Anatolia, and then the Eastern Balkans, before setting their sights on Constantinople. The Ottoman Turks later rose up as a major power in and around the Mediterranean, challenging the power of the Byzantine Empire. After a series of wars against the Byzantine Empire, or at least what little was left of it, the Ottoman Empire, which they would now be known, led by Sultan Mehmet II, conquered Constantinople in 1453, renamed it Istanbul, and made it the capital of the ascendant Ottoman Empire. And from then on, the Byzantine Empire was officially no more. The Ottoman Empire would continue to expand, using Ghazi warriors, who were Muslim nobility, and Janissaries, who were essentially Christians who were taken captive during conquest and were sort of a cross between slaves and mercenaries. They were taken as children, educated in the Muslim faith and given training, and were a paid military force. But at least in the beginning of the use of Janissaries, they were not allowed to marry and they were made to live by a number of restrictions. By the late 1500s, the Ottoman Empire would encompass most of the land surrounding the Mediterranean, including the Balkans, Eastern Europe, and the Greek Peninsula, the area surrounding the Black Sea, and for our purposes, most of the Middle East region, all the way to the Persian Gulf to the east, much of the coast of the Red Sea to the southeast, along the coast of the Arabian Peninsula, as well as Egypt and most of the Mediterranean coast of North Africa, stretching past Algiers to the west. The Ottoman Empire would rule for the next half millennium. Next time, we'll go across the Atlantic to the United States. As the U.S., a newcomer to the scene in the grand scheme of things, was developing its national identity, what would be its relationship to the storied Middle East? And for immigrants arriving to the New World from the cradle of civilization, what would their lives be like? And how would they fit into the American hierarchy? Thank you so much for listening to Potstarer Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstarerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe for free, you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. And I am always tweeting. So follow me on Twitter at PotsterCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.